Hi, this is Steve Roost and you're listening to Health Tech Hour on UK Health Radio. Each week we give you the best news, views and interviews from the health technology world. From CEOs and founders to entrepreneurs and clinicians. The companies and people that are shaping the future face of healthcare. All on the world's number one talk health radio. Hello and welcome to Health Tech Hour on UK Health Radio, the world's largest and best talk health radio. My name is Steve Roost and each week we bring you the best news, views and interviews with the CEOs, leaders, clinicians and founders who are changing the face of the healthcare industry in the UK and beyond. I'm a founder and CEO of a health tech company myself and I am passionate about the people and companies who are changing the world. As always, before we get into the show, just a bit of business, please make sure you follow the show, which is at Health Tech Hour on the socials. Please also make sure you follow the station, which is at UK Health Radio to stay on top of all of the great content that's coming up. Um, Another thing I want to mention, if you happen to be a health tech leader and you listen to the show regularly, or if you know someone who is and you think that they'd be a good guest for the show, please get in touch. We're booked up right the way through the end of the year, but for next year, we're already starting to search guests, search for guests. So if you can DM us on at Health Tech Hour or contact the station, if you go to the UK Health Radio website, ukhealthradio.com, you can submit your suggestions. We would love to hear your thoughts. You're all smart, intelligent, inspirational people. So please get in touch with your suggestions. So today on the show, it's the first time we've done this. We're doing the show from the PocDoc Laboratory which is in Cambridge, a secret location in Cambridge. Um, When the video goes up on YouTube, you'll be able to see all of the equipment and stuff that we've got going on behind. I had to kick the team out today. Um, They got to go for a pub lunch uh, and I'm I'm in here doing the show. Um, But yeah, fingers crossed they won't come back in halfway through and, you know, clatter around like a herd of elephants. So on to today's show. This is a return to a topic that's close to my heart and also critical to healthcare systems worldwide. And that is critical to healthcare systems worldwide, which is remote monitoring, remote monitoring of patients, which is basically how to check that people with long term conditions are okay or not okay outside of a clinical environment. So not in a hospital, not in a doctor's surgery. And then if there is a problem, how do you intervene quickly and appropriately and safely and get that person treated in the in the in in a proper way? So um, the company we have on today is Dignio. Dignio is one of the leading health tech companies in this space, Um, originally started in Norway and now in the UK for quite some time. Um, And we have Dr. Eva Trukanovic, who is their UK managing director on the show today. Dr. Eva is a scientist, foremost academic in her field and a champion of healthcare equality. Eva, welcome to the show. How are you? Thank you, Steve. I'm very well. Thank you. Good. So it's been a bit of a crazy 18 months. What has the last 18 months been like for Dignio, for you and Dignio? Uh, it certainly has been busy and uh, we have seen the sea change in attitudes amongst the healthcare providers and other care providers in terms of how the assistance from technology and the support that technology solutions can offer is viewed. Whereas previously it was sort of a nice to have, the necessity to actually start treating, intervening and looking after people remotely because of the necessity of the pandemic has really uh, heightened the perception of tech can actually be a really good thing to employ in your practice. Yeah, well, we're going to get into all of that. And look, I'm a big believer in 
in this area myself it's sort of connected to why we started pop doc so look you're, you're preaching to the to the choir at least with me anyway um so the show as as regular listeners will know is in three parts the first part is more of a kind of an origins about how um eva came to be doing all the awesome stuff eva's doing at dignio the middle bit is all around what dignio is doing to change the world and then the final bit is really more around you know what's the future we can kick around some topics of the day obviously remote monitoring you know how do we look after patients digitally how do we look after people when they can't go to the doctors because of whether it's you know waiting lists or inconvenience or restrictions obviously this is all really topical so um you know and i'm guessing we'll be referring to it throughout the show as well so eva as we said at the start of the show you are a leading scientist hugely successful academic um in your field and so at what point did you want to did you realize that you wanted to embark upon that pathway you know however you would define it as a scientist or as an academic first or how, when did you decide or when did you realize that that would be your kind of initial path uh, I've always had uh, uh, an interest in science and uh, the scientific framework of perceiving reality and uh, testing whether what you think is correct or is incorrect has been uh, very well aligned with the way I think and rationalize things so science was a natural natural landing place for me however very quickly, I discovered that actually I'm not cut out for the academia. Uh, I love consuming science. I really love reading about the discoveries, the sort of cutting edge, blue sky thinking, wonderful concepts and wonderful discoveries and innovations. However, I lacked the patience to actually engage in the process and be the scientist who actually creates science. So very quickly, I discovered that uh, industry is actually closer to my heart. So I crossed over into working with uh, companies. Okay. And... Um... What was the fields that you were focused on in academia, particularly? So initially, I started off with psychology. I did my PhD with a mixture of uh, psychophysiology, so very biologically focused neuroscience. And uh, then I worked on clinical trials in reproductive health. And uh, following that, I worked on clinical trials within cardiovascular uh, diseases. And uh, at that point, I started running my own pharma consultancy to support okay. uh, clinical trials in uh, early stage of uh, when medicines are tested, whether they're safe to use in humans. And okay. after that, again, I got bored, as one does, uh, <laughs> having a sort of a, a, a mind that requires stimulation. So I started working with early stage medtech companies. And okay. uh, it was during those journeys working with medtech companies that I encountered Dignia as one of the companies that uh, were considering uh, setting up in Britain. Okay. And so let's just go back a bit. because I think what you said there was really interesting around that you felt like academia wasn't a place where you could best fulfill your, um, what's the word, particular desires or, you know, idiosyncrasies, for want of a better word. <laughs> what, um, what, 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 what do you think that, why do you think that that was the case? Because obviously I know there will be some people listening who are academics, there will be people that something that aren't, and there will be people that don't necessarily, you know, know what the, the, the ins and outs of, of, of being an academic involved but I mean yeah so what why was that the case? Sure uh, so I think horses for courses and I think people should not be afraid of exploring different options in their career choices this is not like in the olden days that you chose your career for life it was well trodden you had your promotion pathway and you sort of ascended gradually over the years the reality of the working place today is that you can uh, you can be adventurous and can try different things. So as an academic who crossed over to industry, the parts of the academia which uh, 
I found I was not cut out for was the long process that proper science requires, that you will have to wait for a very long time before you see the result of your work. And very often those results are disappointing because all we see, the things that make headlines are the fantastic discoveries that worked and the theories that worked. What we don't see is the hours and hours and hours in the labs, in the offices, uh, over the statistical packages that colleagues in science spent. And at the end of it, their pet theory may be proven completely wrong. And that's good science. Yeah. It's good to fail. But at the yeah. same time, you know, it's you, you don't get immediate gratification. Sometimes you don't get gratification over years. And no. I think I was just a little bit too impatient for that sort of thing. That makes sense. And so with um, why did you what was your journey to digital health or early stage med tech like? Because that's you could have landed in any kind of corporate environment you know there's you know right the way from big pharma through to biotech through to wherever like how come you sort of ended up on that pathway was there something specific that drew you that way or was it just sort of you know more by luck than judgment uh so uh, i think it's more serendipity and i'm a great believer in serendipity and uh, one of the companies i worked with was a venture capital funded small biopharma company from the u.s and uh, the atmosphere of the team, the working practices, the corporate culture of that particular outfit were absolutely wonderful. And that was the type of company I wanted to work with, where they are secure in terms of this is a business which is viable, which may work, and it's settled. So it's not under threat because they don't know whether they'll be able to pay their bills. But at the same time, everyone is really switched on and enthused and still really driven by the discovery yeah. stage. So I was looking yeah. for a company that would uh, combine those factors not okay. to be not to be threatened in terms of corporate operation, but at the same time to be really enthusiastic and really alive. You know, the, yeah. because it makes a difference. The, the sort of you yeah. know the people you work with, yeah. the flavor of the team can be very nice, can be dull, or mm. it can be you know really unpleasant. Yeah, I think that's a really valid point. And it's, it's unless you've worked in in startups or in early stage businesses, or mm-hmm. you know, or if you've been on that that thing, you don't really know that there's this sort of sweet spot whereby it's early enough that everything's new and everything's exciting and you know every day you're changing the world and you know if if you don't come to work today that's a problem because that thing won't get done you know and and but every day you're inventing you're you're coming up with a new way to do things because you've invented something new but it's secure enough that you have a business you have a business model revenue's coming in or it will be coming in you know it's not like just it's not a business plan anymore and that's that sweet spot where i you know i would agree that's the i mean for me that's that's the the, one of the best bits right where you 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 have all of the excitement but the risk has has been re- not completely removed but has been reduced to a point where there's some some stability in the business um so um off the back of that was there a particular when you were looking at these these med tech businesses to work for and things like that with with and, you know and you ultimately i guess it sounds like on that journey ended up at Dignio. Were you trying to focus on particular themes or particular areas? Or again, it was just sort of serendipity that led you on that that pathway? Um, I would say that uh, there are certain sets of skills are transferable and they transfer across industries, contexts, uh, levels of maturity of businesses. So Mm -hmm. you can sort of almost slot yourself and work in in anything. So from my point of view, I was very flexible about uh, what kind of team I was looking for. I was more interested in the atmosphere and the corporate culture of the company, the very sort Mm. of, uh, I like flat management structures. I don't like the sort of companies where you have to apply to meet the CEO when in six months (laughs) time you may get to see them. I like the sort of outfits where, you know, everyone's in it together 
And yes, yeah. someone ultimately has to make the decision, especially when there are difficult ones, and go, we we go or we don't go. But you yeah. have a very open, transparent culture where uh, everyone's views are heard and considered. Yeah. Because you'd be amazed when people come from different backgrounds, uh, where they sort of pick up on aspects and subtleties of uh, risks or opportunities that, you know, mm-hmm. if you surround yourself by the yay-sayers, because you feel comfortable, because there are people like you, you will be missing out on those additional inputs, which can yeah. be incredibly valuable for business. I, especially early stage business. I mean, like, you know, it's survive or die. I mean, there's you, 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 you if you make the wrong, de- you, you can make a single wrong decision and that can be it. That's curtains for the whole thing. So, yeah, no, I, I agree. And I think that definitely in, in my experience, having a plurality of opinions. Mm-hmm on a on an equal level that everyone feels like they can contribute and if they want to obviously they don't have to but if they if they want to that they can um and having that exposed to senior management just decision makers is 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 critical you know and when 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 that disconnect comes in i think you're completely right where like if if there's a disconnect between the people that are doing the work who are really close to what you're actually doing and the people that are making the decisions that can cause some real problems i think so. Yes. And, uh, you know, there are so many challenges in the early stage of survival. We have reached a stage where we're scaling up and expanding across different global footprints. So we sort of passed that uh, initial stage of, you know, the business might fail because of one wrong decision. However, you know, it's a busy marketplace. It is what it is. You know, we're never in a green field where there's no one else. So, again, that's where the strengths of the teams and different perspectives and people bringing in different ways of viewing yeah. things and doing things really strengthens the offering and you know ensures that we see reality for what it is not for what we wish it to be i i agree because i think otherwise you know with with the stage of the company and we'll get into what digno is doing in a second but as the companies get larger you're you're absolutely right it's not that a single decision can kill it i mean unless it's a spectacularly bad one (laughs) (laughs) but but, but like you know within reason it's not going to come down to a single call but what you find is that or I, i don't know if you think this is true is that you know, you can pick a direction and if it's the wrong direction, you end up losing 12 to 18 months before you can turn the tanker back around again and get the thing back on track. And you, there could be other sort of secondary impacts from from that wrong direction. People might leave, you might not win business and so on and so forth. And it's just sort of, it just slows your momentum down a bit. But I don't know if you feel the same way. Uh, I think we're still at the stage where we can be fairly agile and opportunistic, but you're absolutely right. It takes, you know, one of those and you can end up investing both your resources as well as human resources into pursuing something which may turn out to be just, you know, a phantom you are chasing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, yes, absolutely. And it's very difficult to discern because sometimes, you know, landscapes can be market landscapes can be so fuzzy. So it's really yeah. to pinpoint. And that's where the serendipity and the luck comes into yeah. it as well as you, you will know it's an, from your own it's experience an art, it's an art and a science and I mean most days I feel like I'm doing a terrible job you know but you just have to try and figure it out and make the best make the best decisions that you can based on the available data and based on your experience you know I think there's look luck and serendipity definitely play a part but you know there's a there's a my this is what my dad used to say when I was a kid but he used to say this was at the time I don't know if you there was a, a very famous UK golfer called Nick Faldo who won a lot of stuff back in the day um, and he used to say, look, the more I practice, the luckier I get, you know, Absolutely. so it, 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 look, sometimes it doesn't happen that way, but, but, you know, the more that you put, the more effort you put in and the more that you're open, I think, particularly as an entrepreneur, if you're, if you start to ignore what people are saying, because you don't like what they're saying, that's a very slippery slope. 
that's a really dangerous place to be. You know, you have to you have to take the bad medicine because if you don't accept bad information or bad news or whatever, then you can't solve those problems and those problems will they're not going to go away. Um, so, yeah, I, I would agree with what you're saying. Yeah, it's, you know, it's informed decision. There's a reason why we have that phrase. The informed bit is yeah. the critical one, that you pay attention to what's going on. You know, you listen to both the sort of snippets and information on the grapevine as well as the, as the official communications. And, you know, you try to find your way around it. But you're quite right that the more effort you put in, the luckier you get. That's yeah, for sure. Well, yeah, that's if, you, if you don't try, you don't get. It's simple. That, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so let's let's get back to remote monitoring, shall we? That was, mm-hmm. I like, look, I could talk about startup life all day but let's get back to remote monitoring so you've you you, you've transitioned out of academia um or or are transitioning out of academia working with various med tech plays great decision you know well done on that decision um what was your experience or knowledge or or i guess conceptualization of remote monitoring connected care which we can explain in a second but what was your like understanding of that or awareness of that like just generally before you came across Dignio? Uh, I think prior to coming across Dignio, it wasn't really, uh, that was not my scene really. I was more focused on medical devices, so sort of hardware medical devices, things that do things to people or things which I used to do things to people. So more that sort of stuff, not software. So uh, when I came across Dignio, I I like a challenge. So I've always I've always chosen to go for something I don't know a lot about because I think that's exciting and you can learn a lot. So software was not particularly something that uh, I was, I was working with, but it seemed exciting enough. And at that time, uh, remote patient monitoring connected care were not as prevalent or as widely known as to what these things are uh, by the general public and uh, care providers as they are nowadays. So it was a completely different scene. It was more about educating people about the art of the possible with these types of tools, rather than how do we optimize the use of those things. And so that's a, uh, that was going to be my next question. It's almost like you got a copy of my show notes beforehand. But the, um, <laughs> what was what was the general view, or, or what again? What what was in the field in the market at the time where you started to interact with Dignio? Like what what was there? What was the technology like? Uh, there were a few companies. Uh, however, there was a great uh, disparity between the quality, maturity, and uh, how new the technologies offered were. So there were some which were created years ago and sort of remained largely unchanged. Okay. There were some which were very early stage. So you had sort of almost like a chasm where you had some companies which were uh, very much established, but the tech was not so great. And then you had yeah. some which were very new, but the companies were not very mature in terms of their corporate uh, maturity. Cool. Um, so we're going to go for a commercial break now because we have to say thank you to our sponsors for the show. Um, and then after that, we will be back because we're going to talk about Dignio and what Dignio does. So we will be right back. Um, yeah, and we'll catch everyone the other side of the break. UK Health Radio. The station that makes you feel good. good are vitamin C supplements? Usually only a small proportion of vitamin C actually reaches your cells and has a positive effect. Whereas the high absorption levels of Goldman Laboratories liposomal vitamin C help maintain optimal vitamin C levels in your body and strengthen your immune system. 
Now get 10% off when you choose Goldman Laboratories liposomal vitamin C capsules. Just quote 10 off at goldmanlaboratories.com. Do you suffer from pain? B-Cure Laser, a home-use CE-approved medical device for the effective treatment of pain, is now available in the UK. The results of a double-blind trial has shown that B-Cure Laser offers a significant reduction in pain compared to the placebo group. To get your special B-Cure offer now, call free on 0808 501 5122 or Google Radio Pro London. B-Cure Laser. B-Cure Laser. The station that makes you feel good. Hi, and welcome back to Health Tech Hour with me, Steve Roost, and my guest today is Dr. Eva Trukanovic from Dignio, which is one of the leading remote care uh, platforms in the world. So, Dr. Eva, um, let's dig into what Dignio does. So, how, how would you describe to, to the listeners, to everyone, how would you describe what Dignio does? I think in a nutshell, we can say that uh, Dignos technology and methodology connects those who provide care to those who receive care. So it connects clinicians, community nurses, social care support people to the individuals who are being looked after or supported in uh, self-managing their uh, health problems. Okay. And why is that important? Uh, It is important because all healthcare systems worldwide are struggling with a mismatch between the need from the individuals and the resource capacity provided by the system. The way their care was traditionally modelled has crumpled under the strain of the pandemic. So we are now standing at a stage where we can take stock of what worked before and what didn't, but we know we are facing the world which is completely different. And I think it's about remodeling care delivery in such a way that it mm-hmm. is delivered safely and with good quality to everyone who needs it, whenever they need it and wherever they need it. I definitely don't disagree with that. Um, so just to go back to something you said, you said that the the way that care was modeled has basically been destroyed in effect. So what was the model and what was what, what has to be the model now? And, and sort of how does Dignio come into that? Uh, I will focus prim- primarily on the UK uh, market sure. because that's yeah. my baby and that's what I'm interested in primarily. Of course. So traditionally, there was a lot of reliance on face-to-face contact. So if you have a problem, you make an appointment, you go to see your GP, and then they refer you on to some diagnostics, assessments, etc. But your first port of, port of call is your primary care practitioner, your family doctor. Yeah. Uh, the problem is already before the pandemic, there was a built-up of uh, excess work Uh, and and demand from the patients, patient-driven demand, which is natural. People are unwell, they want to be helped. But the availability of appointments, the availability of appointments is somewhat convenient at a time which is convenient to the individual. That was already a bit of a challenge. And that was then subsequently compounded by the the pandemic. I jumped in on you, I'm sorry. What, um, and before that, because look, the pandemic changed everything. So got that. I guess I'm kind of interested in, before the pandemic, there was all the, the system was already under strain at the primary care yes. GP level, and and I think everyone listening can relate to that. I can't get an appointment, mm. or it's inconvenient. I, I mean, look, that's why we started PocDoc to make blood testing easier. So I'm with you with there. But w- what was it? What was there? Were there particular things that caused that increased strain on the system? Was it was it something specific that happened, or was it just a, a, a slow sort of accumulation of different factors that led to this? Like, you know over demand under supply what what are your kind of thoughts on that 
well, I think the contributing factors were multiple. So it's not that you can pinpoint this is what caused the problem. If we fix X, then everything will be yeah. hunky-dory. That's not going to happen, and that's not what the situation was before. So it was a multifactorial impact. And you have the intersection between the needs of the individuals and the population and the supply of the medical and other care. And mm-hmm. also the other problem was care fragmentation. So you would have social care deficiencies driving the uptake of healthcare. And uh, now when we're right. looking at overcoming that fragmentation of care, we can look at sometimes people are best helped to stay well, to prevent getting worse, mm-hmm. rather than waiting for them to be really unwell and then have to treat them with high right. cost course of treatment. Right. That makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. Okay. So how... Um... How would you quantify the issue or, or the, the size of the problem that, that, that remote monitoring or connected care solves, i.e. that Dignio is kind of, and others, but, but Dignio in this case is kind of addressing, like what, how, how do you sort of conceptually, because I think like conceptually, everyone understands that if there's a way for me to get treated or be monitored without seeing my doctor, that's like probably good, Right. But what, what, at a kind of like macro level, what is the scale of this thing we're talking about? And feel free if you want to go specific disease area that might be easier. But yeah, what, what do you think? I think I'll give you just a couple of examples of the impact. So basically, technologies like Digna enable you to deliver care to the individual as and when they need it. And if they are constructed well, then they save the clinical time so that the attention can be given to those who need it the most. So in terms mm-hmm. of impact, one of our projects in Salford with a social care enterprise master call prevented 44% of hospital admissions. That's people who would have gone into a hospital, but they wow. didn't have to. They were treated at home or in a residential okay. care setting. And the okay. other impact is one of the virtual wards that master call colleagues are running is a ward with people who would traditionally dial 999 as the first line of, I need to get some health care or some care assistance here. Okay. So from day one, when you start preventing just one ambulance call out, you have immediate impact on both the costs, the quality of the experience for the individual, but also in terms of the carbon uh, footprint, you immediately have multifactorial good impact by being able to uh, prevent deterioration, picking up when someone is getting unwell and treating them wherever it is that they are, rather than having to foist them out of their bed or, or residential setting take them to another setting, treat them them, and then return them when they get a little bit better. And sometimes not be able to return them because there isn't a care package waiting for them. So they sit yeah. in the hospital bed. Yeah. No, we've had some, we've had a lot of other companies around the, the space around bed blocking and things like that. No, I think it's a, a major issue. So we love case studies on the show. We love metrics even better on the show. So let's okay. go back to that. 40, let's go back to that 44% stat, mm-hmm. which is incredible. So just, if I lay that out, what you said is, as I understood it, by using this particular trust or, or clinical commissioning group or, or, you know, NHS body, use Dignio for a particular reason or particular disease, particular cohort of patients. And 44% of them who would have definitely gone to hospital did not need to go to hospital because they were using Dignio. That's correct. And actually, wow. they had a mixture of people with different diseases and the difference between Dignio and other uh, suppliers in the market is that our technology is flexible and generic. So it can be loaded up with whichever disease pathway you wish to have hosted on it. And okay. because of that, they were able to run multiple virtual wards. 
they can set up a new virtual world at the you know at the drop of a hat. When COVID hit, the project was already running there and was running with COPD and uh, other long-term conditions patients in community and within care homes. When COVID yeah. hit, they just set up a COVID virtual ward. We didn't even know about it. We found out subsequently, oh, by the way, now we had X number of uh, COVID patients on the books. So okay. that's how easy it is to set things up. And that's why, you know, we focused on giving people a tool which can be adjusted to assist and support the way they deliver care, not to bring in a revolution or start lecturing them about, oh, here's right. our wonderful tech, and this is now how you need to deliver your care. It's more about okay. being very collaborative and making sure we underpin uh, their ambitions rather than come in and say, here's a box, you take it, and you make it happen. Okay, I, I think that sounds that sounds pretty good. So with these 44% of people, what were the general disease areas within that? Like, or, or a different way to phrase it. Obviously, I know Dignio, what you say, can apply to any disease area, but I'm guessing that there are certain areas where it lends itself more to because the problems are more um urgent or 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 it's more suited to certain things so how how would you sort of describe or explain that uh so just to give you more of an overview our original cohort of patients were uh, copd patients because chronic obstructive pulmonary disease then we also run heart failure diabetes uh, but from from our point of view, we don't focus on the disease because a person is not a disease unit. So we focus on the person because you can have a diabetic who goes on to develop cardiovascular complications, kidney failure, gets diabetic yep. foot, needs amputation or whatever, God forbid. And, you know, you need to give people a tool that can evolve and help them along that journey, whatever happens. And normally, if you have long term conditions, you know, it's not a pleasant thing to have. So you may develop no. additional mental health issues. And again, it's about being able to give someone a tool that can assist them to report on the physical well-being, on the mental health well-being, give them tools to cope, give them trusted source of uh, information, because that's another issue in the social media age, uh, that people can Google anything and they can cross, uh, you know, different spaces on the Internet, which will be full of gook. And if they take it seriously, they get really, really unwell. So it's about giving the complete package and the wraparound care, which is built around the person, not the disease pathways. But the traditional groups we've worked with, COPD, heart failure, rheumatoid, diabetes, pretty much any long-term condition that you require assistance with can be loaded mm-hmm. up on the, on, uh, on the solution. Okay. And so um, with any of those conditions, I guess particularly look, the pre- preventing half of people that would otherwise go to hospital from going to hospital is a phenomenal achievement. I mean, like you say, there's obviously direct savings, indirect savings. Yes. You know, no one wants to go to hospital. Staying in your own home has huge amounts of benefits, mental health, you know, recuperation, all that kind of like stuff. So it's a huge, that's a huge, a huge impact. Um, could you walk us through what, like, I, I guess, what a patient, how, how did those patients interact with Dignio in order for them to not need to go to hospital? I guess, like, what was their user journey through whatever that service was that meant that they didn't need to go to hospital and could remain at home? Because I think that that's super interesting. Okay, so I think from the patient point of view, the experience is that they need access to Dignio app. So the Dignio app for the individuals would be called MyDignio. They can download it on their own smartphone. And for some patient groups, we recommend iPads. And okay. we normally go Apple first because we know it's a reliable product where they they will have really good user experience. Uh, however, for at scale projects, we use the Bring Your Own device. So they download the app on their own smartphone. They get a kit to take home. So they'll get the set of devices which are specific to their disease. 
So for example, if they're a COPD patient, they get spirometer, pulse oximeter, digital thermometer, whatever else may be required as decided by the clinical team. All those devices are Bluetooth connected. There's no pairing. So they go home. Before they leave the clinic, they get trained on how to use the devices, how to use the app. They go home. They log in. The app sends them notifications where something needs to be done, either answer some questions or do a communication with the care team or Mm -hmm. perform, uh, measure something, measure your blood pressure, let's say. So they pick up, they log in, they pick up the blood pressure machine, they take their blood pressure, that's it. It goes ping. And the measurement is immediately visible to the clinicians on the web-based interface at the other end. If anything is out of ordinary, either on the way they answer certain questions or the way that the results are, an alert will be raised for the clinicians. And everything is risk stratified on the clinical dashboard. So the whole uh, premise of the solution is to enable the clinicians to attend to those who need the attention. So if someone is stable, doing well, they can have thousands of patients sitting on the system If those patients are coping well and there's nothing out of ordinary, they don't need to know about them. However, if anything goes out of killed, they can see immediate kilter, I think is the expression, actually. I think the immediate. I quite like like out of kilt. Well, I think I'm thinking of Scotland right now quite a lot. So I think that's why kilts are popping into my head quite inappropriately. (laughs) Uh, So leaving Scotland aside, uh, they can then see who needs attention. And the whole point of it is to save their time. So they don't yeah. waste their time doing tick box follow-ups. They actually do yeah. follow-ups with those who need it. And the other interesting thing we have is a medication compliance support, uh, which is like a gadget that basically alerts the patient, you need to take your medication now. And if they yeah. don't, then again, the caring team can see they haven't taken their medication. So they can follow up with them and see what's going on. Why are you not completing your tasks? Why are you not doing your exercise? why you're not drinking, eating, whatever it is that they want to load up the solution with, to basically enable the, to empower the patients to self-manage and to look after themselves as much as and, possible. Um, yeah. And, and with, with, when you say the clinical team, the clinical team looking at this, the clinical people are looking at this, mm-hmm. does that depend on what condition you're talking about? Or, or is, it, is, it peop- is it always clinicians who are normally in a hospital or is it a specialty? Is it a you know, is it GPs or does it sort of depend? Like, who are these kind of people that are looking at this stuff generally? Uh, so uh, generally speaking, uh, because of the fragmentation of care, the reality we're facing at the moment, that will be a very well-defined team. So it will be either a specialist team looking after COPD patients or it will be primary care team looking after right. specific care homes or out of hospital, out of our care providers such as Mastercall. However, okay. the way the solution is set up, it's set up for multiple teams, multidisciplinary teams to be looking after the person. So if you imagine the person in the center, with whatever problems they have, and around them are the various teams looking after them. They can be clinicians, they could be social care, they could be some social prescribing support. Whatever it is, it's all, the architecture is built around the person's needs. And that's why it can change and evolve. So you need to add a team, you add the team. You need to take away a team because the person has gotten better, because they no longer need their perioperative care. You take the team away. And it's all designed to travel with the person as their needs change and then if they need to go into care home and then they have a specific gp practice looking after them that will be the practice that will be viewing and responding and keeping that person well within the setting where they are that makes sense i I look i like the idea that anyone can log in and view the patient anyone that has an interest in the patient can log in so it's not like you know i think often particularly with diseases because what you want to avoid i think is that you can't have too many different versions of these platforms for each disease, right? Because then that just becomes unwieldy. Like you say, because there's so many comorbidities. I think 
you know, 80% of people with type 2 diabetes will contract cardiovascular disease in some way, shape or form. You know, so there's a huge there's a huge crossover um, between these things. And you, it's, it's probably going to be difficult to, to expect clinicians to have, OK, I'm going to look at patient A on, on this platform for this condition. And then then then, then paper, patient A turns up on this other platform for this other thing. I think that's kind of maybe that is happening, but I can't believe that that will be what's happening in five to 10 years time. Uh, I think that the, the current guidance from NHSX is to focus on interoperability and ensuring that data does not sit in silos. I think you've got I, double whammy here because you've got the uptake by the patients. And if you give them 20 apps because they happen to have 20 problems, yeah. they're not going to comply. And very often the people who are most at need of this kind of intervention and support are the ones that maybe have some restrictions in terms of what they can cope with. Yeah. Uh, and on the other hand, when you have clinicians, they're busy. The last thing they yeah. want to do, you know, is to spend their working day logging in and out of various systems. So yeah. I think one has to happen. be mindful. Absolutely. So one has to be mindful that when you're introducing tech to support care, you need to focus at both user groups because there's no point giving patients fantastic tech that they love, but the clinicians have zero interest in the data and they yeah. don't want to see it or they're swamped. Yeah. Uh, and on the other hand, you give clinicians a tool where they really love the data points they're receiving, but the patients are non-compliant. So there are no data yeah. points to look at because so, the so patients no are data. not using it. Yeah, Absolutely. It's like, yeah, yeah, it's the best system ever, but just has zero data on it. No, I like I, I think it's like, yeah, it's like you've got to have both sides. Um, so if, if, if Dignio isn't being used, or put it differently, prior to Dignio being available or other things like this being available, or if they're not being used, what, what, what's happening in, in the healthcare system right now? Uh, so the, 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 there's much bigger uptake of digital tools at the moment, but prior to yeah. that, and still there are pockets where people will have paper records and they will use telephones. So they'll have clinicians okay. attempting to make a phone call and failing multiple times, wasting the time, and then dialing wow. again. And you know, if anyone tells me that's a good use of clinical time of a highly skilled professional's time, I would really question how it is. So yeah, that's like, what the risk stratification yeah, tools are replacing that. But that's but that's a great. I mean, look, the way you phrased it's brilliant. Who is making the case that clinicians calling people is a good use of their time? Are are there people genuinely making that case? And there's like a genuine counter argument to platforms like Dignio, or, or is it is it just a kind of a inevitable? It's a question of time and they just it's inertia that's stopping them converting over. Or what, what do you think? Uh, I'm not sure what the motivations are, but we are still seeing presence of this kind of telephony service. So, for, for example, Oximetry at Home, it was all rolled out and there were large sites where it was rolled out. But a lot of those sites would have been that paper diary to the patient, post oximeter to the patient and a telephone call once a day. And if your patient suffers silent hypoxia in between, if they suffer any other complications, you wouldn't know. Yeah, well, I just, I just, you know, I think leaving aside the impact of the pandemic and leaving aside all of these kind of, I guess, very acute conditions that we find ourselves in and or, or, or under, you you wouldn't, if you had a blank sheet of paper, a system whereby there's a doctor calling someone every day to check if they did the thing, that 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 doesn't strike me as a scalable system, irrespective of what the other like whatever else is happening in the world it's not sustainable it is however you know really easy to to deploy it's really easy to set up so you just set up you know yeah. people phoning people 
Uh, no risk. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody's going to lose so. their job because they told yeah. the doctors to phone patients, right? <laughs> yeah, I guess. I guess so. I guess so. Well, look, let's. There's a lot more questions I want to dig into about Dignio and, and where it's going. So we're going to do another quick break for some more commercials, and then we'll be right back with Dr. Eva Chukanovic from Dignio. UK Health Radio, the station that makes you feel good. Galar Light is the quantum energy emitted from the universe, from the sun and stars. Now, Tom Palladino, a humanitarian and scalar light researcher, has created the world's only scalar light healing system, a system that can bring long-distance healing and wellness to humans, pets, and plants via a photograph. Get your free 15-day trial now at scalarlight.com or click on the Scalar Light banner on the UK Health Radio website. Shields like masks are top of mind right now. But did you know you have inner armor working constantly to protect you from pathogens? It keeps you healthy and thriving. It's your immune system. Ion Gut triggers the body's natural ability to support gut strength all year long, so your immune system can protect you when you need it the most. How are you treating your inner armor? Visit uk.ionbiome.com to learn more. Ion Gut. Protect what protects you. UK Health Radio, the station that makes you feel good. Hello and welcome back to the final part of this week's Health Tech Hour with Dr. Eva Kukanovic from Dignio. So, um, Eva, want to follow up on the things that you were just saying. One of the things that you were saying is that patients don't want to do patients find it hard enough to use one app let alone multiple apps so why does this remote monitoring matter to patients like what or or rather a different way to phrase it what is a patient generally what is their reaction to this type of technology specifically dignio or just in general you know what what's their kind of reaction to it uh, well, the usual assumption that we hear is, you know, that frail elderly will not use tech. Our experience yeah. has proven that is not true. And then the, there are various other patient groups that get. What's, what, what's the um, what's the oldest person that uses Dignio or has used uh, Dignio? In Norway, at the moment, I think our oldest uses is hundred plus. The oldest what? chap we trained, yeah, the oldest chap we trained in the UK was eighty four. That's uh, cool. Using own smartphone and using wow. Bluetooth-enabled pulse oximeter and digital thermometer it took about twenty right. minutes to do the training session on the devices and this and the app. Right. Uh, because we've worked so closely with the uh, with the end users, we made sure that the way the app presents itself and the way the whole journey through the navigation through the app is as user-friendly as as simple as possible. So we have really high compliance rates. In one of the projects in the West Midlands, we had uh, 90% of patients saying they would recommend it to their friends, 100% of clinicians saying I would recommend that to to a colleague because Uh of the experiences that patients use it. Clinicians like what they see. It's useful data. It's something that uh, supports the care. And what we like to describe our uh, solution is not remote patient monitoring. That is sort of like passive. You know, you're sort of getting data yeah. feeds from people. So we like to talk about connected care because we focus on connecting those who need care with those who provide that care on an ongoing basis. So uh, whenever there's an increased need, uh, you can respond to that increased uh, need via the solution. 
And again, if someone okay. is stable and well and wants to be left and can be left alone, then you leave them alone. So that's so connective care for you is the process of connecting a patient digitally with the care that they need in an efficient way that efficient for the healthcare provider because it's not face to face and that healthcare provider can provide care to many thousands of people at the same time um, but also efficient for the for the end user for the patient because they can go about their life within reason that they were otherwise doing and also receive round the clock you know connection to someone that can give them care if they need it. Precisely. So the biggest anxiety about technology from the patient users when uh, various people run stakeholder meetings was that they'll feel they'll be abundant with tech. So they'll be given right. a box and they will never see a nurse or a clinician. or Never talk to anyone. Absolutely. They'll, you know, they'll, they'll just have a problem and no one will. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So the purpose of our solution is to make people feel that they're connected, that yes, there's this tech support, but it's part and parcel of the care pathway. It's not something that either or. And it's there to make them feel really safe. And the feedback we have from patient users is that the first thing that it does for them is feeling of safety, the reduction in anxiety, learning about what makes them better, what makes them worse. So when you say they can go about the business, absolutely, they stop being controlled by the illnesses. They start being in control because they learn about what is it that I'm suffering from? On, 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 on days like this, I feel okay, so I can do a lot more. And on days like this, I don't feel that great and therefore I should maybe reduce my activity. This is one of the things that I think it, and is, is that instead of preventing people or, pro, quote, protecting people from their biological data or their mm-hmm. biomarkers, by actually educating them and allowing them to track them themselves, they, they understand their conditions more. They, they actually understand why measuring your O2 levels is important or having a lower blood pressure is important. And they can start to see, I don't know if this is the case, but I suspect it would be, is as, as you sort of hinted at, it's like understanding the interplay between, oh, if I live my life in this way, this is what happens to my markers and this is what happens to my condition, right? And they can understand the connection between them a bit more would be my, that's my belief, but I don't know what you think. Well, certainly based on our experiences, both in Norway and in the UK, the sort of having those tools helps you with behavioral change. So if you know that certain things make you better, certain things make you worse, uh, you will always have a small minority, which will be very resource intensive and will always need this additional support. But majority of people, if you give them the correct tools to support their self-care, self-management, which are personalized to them as an individual, it's not something that comes out of the box and tells them how they should be. So the whole premise of our solution is to make sure that what is given to the person as the self-management plan actually makes sense to them. And it's building yeah. collaboration with realistic goals and yeah. proper baselines so you don't end up triggering lots of false alerts, which are no, no, not good for the patient and not good for the clinicians who have enough data to look at under normal yeah. circumstances. You know, So it's all about giving people tools that enable the self-empowerment and self-management. Yeah, I mean, um, you know, sign me up. Um, so what are the biggest obstacles that remain if, if any, in terms of the uptake of this technology across healthcare systems. You can pick the UK, you can pick, pick anywhere, but more just in general, you know, it's one of the things, and we have it a lot on the show, which is that, it's one of the reasons I like doing the show, is that there are so many people doing things that make so much sense, right? So is it just a question of time, or are there actually kind of major obstacles, that systemic obstacles somehow that need to be overcome? Uh, there are differences between markets. So I'll focus on the UK, because the reinvestment sure. system is different, and there's a great appetite for digital 
the challenges that we face is different digital maturity at organizations. So places you go to, some of them are just sort of at the beginning of the digital transformation journey. They don't have any proper systems in place. Yeah. Other places try to create their own from scratch, which is really annoying because it's really expensive and protracted and not safe to be yeah. creating tools when you have an open market where there are multiple suppliers that you can pick and yeah. choose from. Which one do you yeah. like? What is it you want to achieve? It's like, so it's like, that's, look, that's it's annoying. Like, it, it's like the record companies when they tried to build their own streaming platforms and it was a disaster. Precisely, yes. They so there's that and... Uh, precisely. And the other aspect is uh, procurement practices, which are at the moment being overhauled. And okay. with the focus on the reduction in fragmentation of care delivery, that is helpful as well for digital tools because you need to mean? be able to build that pathway. So, you know, traditionally data would sit. So your yeah. primary care data would sit in your primary care, your secondary care data would sit in the hospital systems, which were right. sometimes homegrown and built just for okay. that trust and nowhere else. And right. then there were always ambitions, ongoing perennial ambitions to have some sort of a data repository where data would flow from all those sources. Plus, mm -hmm. if you can connect, uh, there are some shared companies' records, shared care records companies, that bring even data from agencies like police, social care, et cetera, et cetera. When all the okay. data is brought together, it's very powerful. But at the moment, we're still at a stage where it isn't effectively across uh, nationwide. <coughs> Excuse me. Digital right. maturity, organizational maturity, and risk-averse culture doesn't help. Right. That makes sense. Um, <coughs> and what is the... I mean, I, I'm going to go out on a limb and say it's probably pretty positive, but what's the feedback like from clinicians that use Dignio? Excuse me. You're, no, no worries. You okay? Yeah, you take a moment. <laughs> okay. Uh, this Can is the season of, of all ills. Bit. Yeah, it's okay. Uh, the reaction from clinicians is uh, sometimes when we look at deployments, they can be quite suspicious. So occasionally they really worry that instead of decreasing their workload, this will actually bring more work because a lot of people have had really bad experiences in the past where technologies were rolled out with zero support from the supplier or they were rolled out and they were set up in such a way that they ended up with data swamp with lots of right. things to look at or they ended up with uh, key performance indicators which were skewed against them. So they'd get right. lots of traffic in which was indiscriminate and if they didn't respond within X amount of time that was locked as you know, some sort of failure right. on their part. So a lot right. of people have had bad experiences with tech in the past so they can be quite worried about, oh, God, yet another one. You know, what are they bringing here? You yeah. know, but uh, so we face that. But very quickly within the deployment process, because we do a lot of handholding and we work very closely with the clients, very collaboratively. Mm -hmm. uh, some of those anxieties are assuaged at the very outset of the process. But also very quickly, they begin to see the gains for themselves in how they're able to organize the processes of care a little bit better and optimize them to release some time but also in terms of impact on the patients. And ultimately, people go into medicine because they want to help. They want to yeah. make people better. So when they begin to see the impact, the compliance from the patients, the impact it has on them, the feelings of safety, and also at the same time, the ability to manage care better in the knowledge that they have something that keeps their patients safe, uh, there is a shift in attitude. And uh, right. we, we, we like to have, you know, I'm talking to you now, Steve, but that is not our preferred mode of, talking about Dignia, our preferred mode is to have our patients and our clinical users talk about what it's like to use our system because yeah. they're the best ambassadors and they'll tell you as it is. And we work with them also to add functionalities, features, other ways of doing things, if that is helpful to them. We don't stand still, but we prefer our actual users to talk about uh, what our solution can achieve for them. Yeah, I, I makes sense. I mean, I think that the, the success of the platform, you know, 
44% of people, just that one stat alone, 44% of people that would otherwise go to hospital didn't go to hospital because they used Dignio. That's pretty compelling. Um, so, yeah, no, I think it sounds, you know, extremely promising. And I'm sure that both patients and clinicians alike are, are, are once they get to use it, are extremely positive by, by the sounds of it. Because why not? I mean, again, neither side wants people to go to hospital. That, that, Absolutely. Hospitals they are don't have to places. go. They don't, they, they, they don't need to. They don't need to go. Um, so what do you think the next kind of like 12 to 18 months looks like for, for Dignia, specifically in the UK? Because I know that's your, as you say, your baby, if you, if you want to. To, to kind of do just the UK? Uh, yes, I think in the UK, we're definitely seeing uh, a lot more uh, concentrated effort to make digital the uh, way of delivering care. So there's definitely the central government reforms, the way the funding is now being released and uh, the emphasis on quality, not just have something, roll something out, but about standards and quality and expectations of what the solutions that uh, uh, should be privileged to work with the NHS patients and their data, what they should yeah. look like to begin with before you know they're unleashed into, into daily use. So there's definitely a change in flavor in terms of that it's being taken seriously. The funding streams are trickling through and following. So you know there's this horrible saying, put your money where your mouth is. Mm-hmm. I think in the UK we are beginning to see money being put into yeah. the digital, digitizing the NHS ambitions. That is definitely yeah. the sort of last three months. There is a lot more doors opening and a lot of uh, a lot more funding pots opening. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. Um, and so just to pick up on that point, you know, do, do you know or do you think that the UK is different, better, worse, more progressive, less progressive in terms of digital health than some other markets? I don't know whether you've got any sort of good comparators. Uh, we, well, in Norway, we are presently 90% of the Norwegian territory. We are the market leader. Wow. So the appetite within the Nordics for digital solutions has been more established than it has been in the UK. UK has been uh, very ambitious with plans and with trying to make things happen, but it's been quite patchy in the past. Now we are okay. seeing a lot more centralized effort. But again, the reimbursement scheme longer term needs to be fixed, the way things are procured and reimbursed. So in the States, for example, it's much simpler. You know, uh, as a digital healthcare provider, what will pay for your services and how much? In yep. Britain, it's a little bit more of a mixed landscape. And I yep. think we need to simplify the procurement and the subsequent reinvestment practices a lot more right. to de-risk the uptake of digital solutions by the NHS trusts, commissioners right. and, 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 and other potential buyers. Is that because it's a nationalized system, but you end up having to go to each sort of regional CCG to go through that procurement process like regionally or like why is there that sort of disparity if you like uh i i well i think the the difference is the difference is you know we talk about the national health service but anyone who tries to sell to the nhs will tell you they haven't encountered this national system yet because it's very much uh, it's very much different places operate a little bit differently and there's a beauty to it because they can respond rapidly to their local population's needs but at the same time, there is a messiness to it because as a supplier, you don't have a proper sort of overview of this is what's expected of me. Mm. Now the now it's evolving a little bit in that direction, but I think it will be a while yet before we can have clarity on, you know, this is how things happen and this is uniformly standardized across at least, at least England. Yeah. But the vibes are all going in the right direction. So I'm hopeful. Yeah, no, I would agree. I mean, look, all the, all the, all the signs point to, point to green, so to speak, here. Um, in terms of obviously, so in, in terms of connected care platforms providing care digitally outside of a clinical environment, how far technologically do you think that that can go? I mean, how, how many conditions 
you know, I know you said Dignio can work across anything, but did, ha, what, what, what do you think that that progression looks like? Or like, is there, are there technological barriers that need to be overcome or, or, or devices that need to be created in order to monitor certain other things? Like what's your kind of vision for the future? Uh, I think my personal vision would be taking care completely away from the hospital, unless you need something done to you physically. So if you right. need a diagnostic where you need to go through a machine or you need to be assessed by a human, great. But anything that can be done remotely ought to be done remotely. And uh, there are various, you know, so things we're looking at are things like wearables. But some of the wearables nowadays are quite clunky and the adhesives mm -hmm. are not very skin friendly. So when you look yep. at certain populations, it looks great on paper. It's not so great in practice. So we would look at evolving technology that supports connected care delivered remotely. Those are all evolving and working in concert. And that will enable removing the care, delivering it where the person is not bringing the person to some setting. Yeah, I agree. That's what we're trying to do with POC doc and blood testing. So um, yeah, no, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm signed up to that, that charter. So um, Eva, that's the end of the show. We've reached the end. So thank you very much for coming on. Um, thanks for being a fantastic guest. Um, you know, wish, wish you guys all the best at Dignio. I think you're doing amazing work. So yeah, thanks, thanks for coming on. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Good. And um, thanks to everyone for listening and hope to see you again next week or you know that you'll tune in next week we'll have another great guest keep an eye on the socials for who it will be and yeah have a great day everyone thanks for listening